1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So I'm always fascinated when I get to speak to different countries, and specifically India. India, one of the poorest countries on the planet, one of the most biodiverse regions on the planet, has the highest human-wildlife conflict issues on the planet, probably. And its wildlife is burgeoning. Tiger populations increasing, leopard populations increasing. But there's zero hunting. Hunting was banned in 1972. And so I wanted to have a conversation with two individuals, Ryan Lobo and Peter Semenasek, and I probably messed up his last name, about wildlife resources in India, consumptive use model, and some of the actions that are taking place right now in the parliament to amend the Animal Protections Act of 1972 that potentially could open the door to some consumptive wildlife use and resource utilization in the country of India. Fascinating, fascinating conversation. Something that will just be, you, you're on the edge of your seat because of the information that you've literally never heard about being presented to you. <laughs> well, I know that uh, most Indians that I know are very, very, very polite. I guess it's a it's a form of our colonial heritage. It's nothing to do with I, colonial. I like to it's to do with a mother's <laughs> mother's hand. Yeah, you know, one of every <laughs> day we true. talk out of turn. <laughs> very true. Very true. Well, let me ask this question uh, straight off the bat, um, Peter. Are you a hunter? No, not not as such. I study butterflies and moths, and. Um, I'm not a hunter as such, but I grew up on a forest estate of my father's. 
and my father had settled a village. So we were, in a way, responsible for any crop damage that happened in the village. And when the villagers used to get wild boar or something, in, because we had the forest and we didn't let anybody do much inside it. So they would come and say, well, my crop is getting destroyed by these wild boar or this whatever. And then in those days, my elder brothers or my father would have to go and shoot the thing. So we've seen the effect of depredations of uh, what a wild boar does to, what a, what a sounder of wild boar does to a field. I've seen these things firsthand. Ryan, are you a hunter? Uh, well, not exactly. I hunt for my cell phone on a daily basis, but I have gone hunting in South Africa. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I have hunted for waterfowl in South Africa, but not in India where it's illegal. And, but my family supplies seedlings to farmers. So like Peter, I've seen firsthand the effects of crop depredations and uh, especially of animals like wild boar. So uh, small farmers in India with very small holdings of land suffer terribly because of crop losses, whether it's due to birds or wild boar or up north, we have a large antelope called Nilgai. So given our family business, which is supplying seedlings to farmer, we see firsthand how um, uh, so certain animals affect farmers' livelihoods very seriously. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate you two uh, uh, jumping on. It's obviously a massive time difference. I'm 4.30 a.m. in the morning drinking coffee, and it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the country of India, which is who we're speaking to right now, two people, two individuals from the country of India. Uh, Peter, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? You've given us a little bit of an introduction to who you are, but... Give a formal introduction. Well, the formal introduction would start off with my grandparents or even before. I come, my, my father's family came from the Sudetenland and we were forest people. My great uncle or great grand uncle Otto was master of the hunt to the Austrian Empire, uh, Emperor. And so we come from a forest back, forestry background. And when my father moved to India, the day the war started, the Second World War started. And, uh, well, he moved here, so he spent the war years in India. And um, in 1945, the Sudetenlanders were thrown out by the Russians and the Czechs. So there was no place to return to. So he bought a forest estate in the Himalay, in the state of Uttarakhand, which is um, west of Nepal. And uh, we had this, uh, in, he bought it in partnership with some people. So we had this 1,200-acre forest estate. And uh, he set up all the hunting laws and the rules and all that that, you know, he was used to in the Sudetenland. So I grew up with the first-hand experience of forest management. And uh, that's about it. And today, your, your main, your job today, Peter? I study insects. I run a thing called the Butterfly Research Center. So I participate in consultancies and stuff to international expeditions to think if somebody wants to know. Um, for example, at the moment, I'm working with the Czech Museum who have uh, permission to collect hawk moths in India. And if they say that, well, there's this particular species and we don't know where to look for it in India, so I'll try to study what that species requires and I'll tell them where to find it. So it's a sort of a specialization. Outstanding. Outstanding. It certainly is a specialization. <laughs> um, 
Ryan, introduce yourself, please. Uh, my name is Ryan, and Ryan Lobo, and I've uh, made films for many years for companies like National Geographic and Discovery Channel. And in India, I've made many films on human-wildlife conflicts, so I've gotten to see firsthand uh, the effects of, uh, of uh, maybe surplus wildlife in some cases on humans and surplus human beings with regard to wildlife in other cases. And um, I, I've made a lot of films. I also write and I am the founder trustee of uh, a foundation which helps with education in the northeast of India, which is very rich with forests. And I've seen how perhaps wildlife can be a resource for people rather than a pest or a hindrance. I've seen the potential during my travels to other countries making films. And I currently still make the odd film. I make photographs, I write, I'm involved in various um, non-profit ventures, let's say, and, and thus we chug along. <laughs> so you are by day, by day job, a, a seedling producer to, as a family business, but then as a hobby, you decided to get into the film space? No, I actually got into the film space out of college to, to make money and travel and, you know, see the world. You're young, you want to you want to go to Papua New Guinea and you can't afford to, so you may as well make a film for someone and get paid to do it, you know. So I did that for many years and, and I, I got to travel to Africa. I eventually became a, a conflict photographer of sorts, you could say. Uh, I, I co-produced a film in West Africa on a warlord over there, which won at Sundance and did very well. So I got I got to travel a lot and, and, and get in-depth, become an amateur expert in some subjects, let's say, which means you don't really know too much, but just enough to sound good. <laughs> As they say, Jack of... A jack of all trades, master of exactly, none, right, Ryan? Exactly. <laughs> so, um, before we got on, you started talking about Peter. Doesn't sound like you know. It sounds like Peter. You did a little bit of hunting back as a young young boy, protecting the the forests and protecting the agricultural lands. Um, maybe Peter, can you set the scene right now for everyone that's listening to this? Who obviously is there's going to be a lot of people that are not from India. Currently in India, it is illegal to hunt, correct? Yes. Mm, well, in 19, until 1972, we had a mosaic of uh, laws uh, of the princely states concerning hunting because the British would put in a resident at the court of the Maharaja or Nawab or whatever happened to be ruling that place. And among the things they put in were hunting laws. So in some places, uh, the law said that if you see a tiger, stop whatever you're doing and shoot the tiger. In some states, it was if, if you see a tiger, just don't even touch it. Regardless, until you attack, don't touch it. So there were different laws in different states. India is a subcontinent, and uh, things are not uniformly available throughout the subcontinent. We have different uh, biogeographical regions. And um, so they were sensible, and that is what was followed by the states uh, until 1972. In 1972, out of the blue, wham, everything was banned. And there was no justification given. I checked around with people who were senior at the time, and there was there's a large Indian non-governmental organization called the Bombay Natural History Society. So Asad Rahmani, who was a young man at the time, he later became the director of the society. He's retired now. So he told me, 
that uh, the Bombay National History Society had um, asked the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi to ban tiger hunting for three years because they felt that there was a drop in tiger populations to allow the populations to recover. And the response was this complete ban on hunting. And it, was, it plays on the emotions of, of justice and equality and, uh, you know, don't kill animals and this and that. Okay, fine. But it completely uh, banned hunting by, uh, not only hunting, I mean, you have, hunting is a very wide term. You have trophy hunting, you have maybe recreational hunting, and you have crop protection. So along with the trophy hunting and, 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 and uh, recreational hunting, they banned crop protection. This has resulted over the years in crop pests being protected by law. So a farmer today in India, if a sounder of wild boar come into his field, he is not allowed to even chase them off his field. It's illegal for him. It, uh, it comes under the definition of hunting. If you actually chase the wild boar off or whatever deer or whatever come into your field, you need permission from the chief wildlife warden in the state capital. You have to sub, you know, submit forms and triplicate and wait for the whole process to happen, by which time, of course, three harvests have been flattened. The result of this is that in my state of Uttarakhand, we have 16,000 villages. Out of them, over a thousand have been abandoned. Abandoned means there's not a single person living there anymore. And these are thousand-year-old villages. Because cultivation is impossible anymore. And then we have a, a trend, which I'm very suspicious about how it happens, but anyway, it happens, that um, we have this trend of forest fires nowadays, which even in the United States, you have that in California. Now, the Californian fires only started in this century. Right. They didn't happen earlier. And people talk about how it's attributed to global warming. But fires start with a match. There are only two places in this world where fires start naturally. That is northern Canada and Mongolia, where you have thunderstorms without rain. So you have actually a thunderbolt hitting a dry tree or a, a patch of grassland in Mongolia, whatever, and that sets fire to the grass. And there's no rain to put it out. Anywhere else, fires are artificial, no matter what they argue. When they tried this argument in India that, you know, fires are natural, it's a part of the process, and uh, they have cycles of fire, different uh, biotypes have different cycles of fire, some every 12 years, some every 50 years, which is rubbish from beginning to end. In 2016, we blew up this matter, and the forest departments were ordered to arrest people under the laws for arson, for setting fire to forests, and in our state, they arrested over 300 people. So they were actually caught 300 people, over 300 people setting fire to forests that were supposed to be natural fires in the course of global warming and rubbish. Now, when the fires are set, what happens, the, we've ha we have fires now being set every uh, twice a year, in February and in April. The whole Western Himalaya burns. Nepal also burns. It's burnt. Not burns, it is burnt. And when that thing burns, the forests burn regularly there is no food left for the ungulates. The deer have died out. The yeah. rabbits have died out. Well, the hare, we don't have rabbits in India, but the hare, hares have died out. The small carnivores have died out. The insectivorous birds have died out. The whole, the whole system has collapsed. There's nothing there. It's just a, a desert, a green desert. The only thing that survives in such a situation are the monkeys who are feeding high above the fire and the wild boar who are digging down for tubers. 
And when there's a lean food period, these monkeys and wild boar come into the fields for their, their food. So um, they have nothing in the mm. forest. The, the forests are dead. So we have this challenge now. And because of this, the subsistence level, farmers have moved to cities. They've dropped out of the village. It's not possible to survive in the village legally anymore. And they have moved to the um, cities and they have become uh, part of the industrial labor force, the piss poor labor force, yeah? living under tarpaulins on the sidewalk. That is what proud householders have become because of very crooked hunting laws mm -hmm. and a lobby that, that is setting fire to the forests of India. So this has to stop. The sad situation. Ryan, you talked to me in the beginning about how you obviously cannot hunt in India based on these laws. And you have gone to you've gone to South Africa and you've hunted. And it was almost like a a revelation when you went there. Yeah. So one thing which struck me very strongly was we visited a farmer and uh, he allowed people to hunt waterfowl on his property, a very large property. And the waterfowl were feeding on the alfalfa, which competed with his cattle, basically. And what was interesting to me was, after we, all of us shot some geese, was that this man who, uh, who had these geese as a crop pest was actually protecting their nesting sites all along the Orange River. And he says, we don't let anyone molest the, the nesting sites. And I, I said, why? They destroy your alfalfa. And he said, no, we make money off the animals. We, uh, people like you come, you pay $200 a day or $300 a day, whatever it was. And uh, there's hospitality, there's this, there's that. We make money off these animals. So it struck me that in India, where we have 150 million farmers, many of who suffer the effects of crop pests, that there might be a, a hidden um, rural livelihood scheme right here. You know, there might be an enormous amount of potential locked within hunting of certain prolific species. Now, the, the, the problem in India is that whenever anyone thinks of hunting, they, they see a British guy with a solar hat on, you know, standing with a rifle with his foot on, on the head of a tiger, maybe, you know. So that idea of hunting, of, of a colonial idea of trophy hunting might be very far away from the truth of what hunting can be. End of the day, whether uh, 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 an, uh, an overweight Texan with a, with a rifle shoots an animal or an impoverished tribal shoots an animal, it doesn't make a difference to the animal. It still ends up dead. You know, so the question to ask is, can there be a sustainable way of managing these animals that benefits people and the wildlife, you know? So, so uh, after visiting South Africa, actually, I, I started looking at all the different uh, wildlife models, let's say different countries have. Uh, I found that, I mean, you have the United States, tremendous success. You have South Africa, Namibia, uh, what struck me most vividly with Namibia was the CBNRM or the Community-Based Natural Resource Management uh, Protocols, which they follow, where communities own wildlife and benefit and profit from them. Uh, in, in South Africa, it's more a kind of ownership thing, I think. You know, people own the wildlife on their properties. Whereas right. in the U.S., you have uh, more, uh, it's a public trust. The country owns the wildlife, but it's regulated and people are allowed to enjoy the benefits of that wildlife, uh, the revenues from uh, from fishing, hunting, camping, uh, national parks are all channelized back into protecting these areas. So when right. you look at the Indian context, when you look at uh, what we have, we have 
50 years of a Wildlife Protection Act that's very frankly highly socialist and authoritarian in nature. It may, creates a forest department which is more a controlling and domineering kind of department. You take away the rights of people to protect their livelihoods and resources. And very frankly, it does not necessarily benefit wildlife outside highly protected areas. Now in India, everyone thinks wildlife lives in these glorious wooded patches, but it actually lives across habitats. In India, about 10% of India's landmass, or 300,000 square kilometers, are called um, wastelands. They, they're, uh, they're, they're designated as wastelands, but they support a very high biomass of wildlife. So in Rajasthan, in Madhya Pradesh, um, in other states, you have uh, rocky areas, grasslands, uh, mountainous areas, which aren't fit maybe for much human use, but which support high densities of wildlife. So all these areas could be used very profitably. And what the vision I see is where people, local people, uh, the, the villagers, the people who live in these villages, who small farmers benefit from wildlife. And paradoxically, that will enable wildlife protection. So we actually have phenomenal examples in this world. We have Namibia, South Africa, North America, but closer to home, we have Pakistan, you know, in India's traditional, well, I hate to say this, but let's just say it for the sake of uh, traditional enemy. enemy. Yes, yes. So right across the right. border, <laughs> I said it. Uh, enemy in many yes. ways, especially cricket. Yes, for sure, for sure. So right across the border, they have something called the Markov Protection uh, Plan. I think it was funded in part by the World Wildlife Fund, where they sell off a few licenses every year for an extraordinary amount of money, you know, and 80% of that revenue flows back to the local community. And what this has resulted in is a large number of Marco. You, uh, you, if you want to poach a Marco, you're in big trouble with the locals over there. I mean, they're massive fines and they look after their Marco really well. And the only reason they do so is because they benefit from them. Currently, the only value most wildlife in India has is either a, being a pest or it's a piece of meat. So there are parts of the Northeast where, you, you, uh, where everything's been poached out even though on paper everything's protected you know so the truth of the matter right. is there's no it's not very good for wildlife what we have today i believe so within protected areas you have a highly colonial approach so a lot of people consider this hunting very colonial and so on and so forth i think the real colonial approach is inhibiting farmers from protecting their property benefiting from their natural resources and having these fortress areas where i mean in, in assam for example uh, trespassers into Kaiseranga are shot on sight, but uh, but uh, so it, it, wow. it's it's crazy. So I I would see policy changing this hopefully in the future, where rather than a blanket ban, you look at conservation from a contextual approach. You know, rather than from a blanket approach, what what applies in Kaiseranga mm -hmm. might not apply in Rajasthan. You know, which might not apply in Uttarakhand, mm -hmm. where Peter comes from, which might not apply in the south where i come from you know in some places even wild boar need protection where they've been poached out maybe mm -hmm. but in other places they are highly prolific and cause tremendous damage you know mm -hmm. so to to be mm -hmm. able to contextually look at these issues and allow for harvesting of game to benefit communities is what i see as the future the hope the hopeful future mm -hmm. peter do you see where you're from obviously you're in the field right now you spend a lot of time in the field i guess i had a different perception maybe of the Indian landscape because of this authoritarian rule 
because of the sort of edict, no animals allowed to be hunted, no animals allowed to be shot. You know, you obviously have good wildlife in areas. But to Ryan's point, are, do you see a lot of poaching? Do you see a lot of the whole um, in 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 America they call it shoot, shovel, and shut up kind of deal? Do you see a lot of that? It's actually um, cartridges are produced by the Indian government and they're supplied and it's uh, gun control ever since British times, ever since the 1857 uprising. Guns have been controlled in our country and now they control the cartridges for them. So it's not easy to get um, cartridges and then, you know, just use them all up sort of thing. So the shoot, shut up and shoot, dig and shut up sort of thing doesn't, it happens, but it doesn't happen too much. Rather, well, maybe um, let me let me take the let like, me change the S then snare snare shovel and shut up. Um, if you consider that a thousand villages have been abandoned, means there's not a single person living there, and about out of sixteen thousand villages in our state, maybe another three or four thousand have one or two families left. Then it's not true. The monkeys have the upper hand. The wild boar have the upper hand, and. Mm. Um, in other parts of India, in the Northeast, because they are traditional hunting rights, so government has not interfered too much, and they continue to to uh, apply those rights or use those rights. So there are not many tigers, for example, outside protected areas in the Northeast, although they have vast forests, very good-looking forests from above, but uh, there are not very many mammals in there because there's a lot of hunting going on. And in this, uh, everybody is uh, involved. It's not a big deal to see people going around with rifles or whatever. And uh, uh, in other parts of India, it's a big deal. And I would say that uh, that uh, a big deal has been made. You see, it's a question of diverting attention. When you say that, well, wildlife is uh, in trouble and poaching is the big culprit. Poaching is not the big culprit. Habitat destruction is the culprit. Right. So you taking your the mm. public's attention away from the real cause of the trouble and saying, oh, that villager with his, with, his, with his shotgun, he's the guy who's responsible for all the damage and not the big industry, which is, you know, bulldozing the forest out and everything like that. So this is a question of diverting attention from the real thing. Uh, the, the whole narrative so far in our country has been poaching is a very bad thing. <laughs> Now, you see, the whatever forests mm. that the government of India owns today were actually community-preserved areas. They were hunting reserves of Maharajas, Rajas. They were village forests. And these have been taken over and declared as national parks. So it is the community that was preserving it. And today, the community has become the enemy of those things because you put in an authoritarian regime. And that never works. The community feels, feels uh, what the, the word I, escapes me at the moment. Ryan, can you help me? The, the community feels ostracized. Disenfranchised. Right? They feel like they, they're criminalized They've lost their rights. for having protected their own forest. Dis and disenfranchised, exactly. So that is definitely not a good thing. Government of India is seen as a... a persecutor and a prosecutor and that 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 doesn't help and when people have to see hunger in the family because the crops have been destroyed by wild boar which they are forbidden to kill because of a government edict it's madness the last time somebody in india tried this government blanket mm -hmm. ban edicts is the emperor ashok in 300 and something bc 
2,400, 500 years ago. And his empire collapsed in 50 years after that. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not a good sign. Mm-hmm. So, well, Ryan, one of the... the um, Ryan, so, go ahead, Peter, finish up. Uh, the, the point of the matter is that today we live in a highly fragmented landscape. We cannot escape the fact that there's agricultural fields, there are plantations, there are urban areas, there are rural areas, and there are natural habitats. So we have to learn to manage the thing. And a lot of people feel that hunting, killing is bad, but even the vegans, um, they have very high principles, but for those vegan foods that come on the table, the number of rats and crop pests that have been killed so that that food reaches the table is phenomenal. The whole idea of agriculture is that there are other life forms in competition with us to get those crops, and we have to kill those other creatures, whether we spray the insecticide on it, whether we, 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 we kill the rats, whether we, whatever we do, we call them vermin and kill them. But the point of the matter is food is produced by denying it to other life forms, by our, to other species. That's how we get our food on our table. You see? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one has... Ryan, one of the... Um... We have to manage. We have to manage things. We have to manage wildlife. We have to manage things. We can't say ban this, cut out that, don't do this. Any blanket ban doesn't work. Mm-hmm. 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 Ryan, one of the things, obviously, we've talked about prior to this podcast is, so, so what can you do, Ryan? Like, it seems almost impossible. You've had 50 years of this blanket ban. Nobody's allowed to hunt. You have, obviously, high wildlife, human-wildlife conflict in, in India. And one of the things that I think is important as a, as a context here is that India is probably one of the poorest nations in the world, especially when you go into the rural communities per capita. Um, so, so how do you even begin to even potentially put something like a pilot opportunity to showcase what a potential hunting revenue model could be like? So uh, in some regards, Robbie, I think it starts at the level of policy. So uh, uh, tweaks in policy have a very intense percolative effects over time. So in some regards, um, once the policy changes, I think Indians are a pretty entrepreneurial bunch. And if it mm-hmm. suits them, people will figure out solutions and ways. Obviously, it's uh, it, these things should never be free-for-alls. And like any country, whether it's Namibia, South Africa, or the United States, there are regulations, there's scientific application of thought, there's, um, there's carrying capacity studies, so on and so forth. It's not an unregulated free-for-all. It's uh, uh, a, a we have enough and more examples to learn from. And India, don't forget, before 1972 was a was a hunting country. A large wild areas uh, generated revenue from hunting, which were plowed back into the conservation of those areas. So it's not like we don't have that tradition still existing, maybe under the surface, as well as the records of all that. But when you look mm-hmm. at it, into, you had mentioned human-wildlife conflict. India is a world leader in human-wildlife conflict. It's like... I think in 2020, you had 88 people mostly killed by tigers in just one state. That's Maharashtra, you know. You had more than 9,000 heads of cattle eaten by tigers in that one state. 
you we've had more than 3000 people killed by elephants in the last 6 or 7 years you know uh what just the single state of uttarakhand has had i think 182 big cats being declared as man eaters in the last over 300 years. per year you know so it's it's over 300 per year okay i i was referring to an over RPI 300 people are killed by scale. wildlife every year in our state okay that's one person okay, a day almost that's 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 insane that's just one state yeah and so across the country you have this human wildlife conflict whether it's big cats who exceed the carrying capacities of protected areas and who spill out i think the last leopard survey which was only done in protected areas showed an extraordinary increase in the number of leopards i mean you could say that's because there are lots of feral dogs about but no oh, feral dogs and your cattle you're not allowed to exactly. you're not allowed to shoot cattle anymore yes. in India. you're not allowed to shoot feral dogs anymore so your prey base is phenomenal yeah, phenomenal prey base you've got high litters in chandrapur and maharashtra you have litters of four tiger cubs surviving to adulthood and you have the beginnings of a catastrophe over here you know where the sufferers are going to be the poorest people in india your small farmer so simultaneous to all this happening you have a very active animal rights brigade in india and this animal rights brigade is very focused it comes from the united states of america it's groups like peta and humane society international which through direct funding aim to change policy in india you know so they fund certain ministers certain animal rights ngos they back court cases and india has looked at uh, a bit like a a petri dish i think you know and we are we are the where the experimental amoeba and it like these yeah. groups so they push a lot of policies that yeah so they push a lot of policies which are patently illegal in say the united states so for example in the united states i think the, uh, nobody wants feral dogs running through your cities whereas in india you have these ngos battling for the rights of dogs to be equivalent to those of human beings you know so i mean there's a lot to be said and it's not worth getting into in great detail now but in short you have a situation in india where human rights as well as very frankly the rights of wildlife are trampled upon by these all encompassing bans which don't at all look into the complexity of a lot of these issues but ryan let me ask this let me push back a little bit i based on conversations i've had with you and compatriots of yours rajiv and prasant and uh bigger off through through text messages wildlife is flourishing in india wildlife is doing amazing so the idea of hunting being able to do better for wildlife just seems sort of opposite to that ryan why would you need hunting if wildlife is doing phenomenally well it depends on what you mean what you how you define a conservation success now when people talk about conservation they they think a conservation success is when there's a large numbers of usually a particular species so in india for example is tigers oh we have a tigers the tiger numbers have grown up but if you define conservation success as per the world conservation strategy protocols it's not just we have a certain number of a certain animal uh, which has 
which is huge or it's, which is wonderful it it looks at you have to maintain the genetic diversity of, of wildlife which is not only the tigers also the soil bacteria and the butterflies and the mice and the little uh, the little um, the monkeys in the trees i mean right across the birds so you have to it's about land use as well which is you need to have land set aside for a multitude for the multitude of life not just only for tigers secondly you you are looking at um, maintaining life-giving processes the second protocol i think of the wcs which is your your natural systems have to be in a healthy state and i mean humanity depends on them for its survival as well and the third is sustainable use which is people have to benefit from their natural resources so how you define conservation success should influence how you go about making your laws and your protocols regarding so-called conservation so uh, everyone uses the word conservation but not many might know its real meaning you know where it comes from and conservation means sustainable use as well where people have to benefit you know so while you might have prolific wildlife in some places of particular species you still have a massive population you still have a myriad uh, of complex uh, problems in some places with industry with with mining with with uh, with uh, uh, setting aside of large areas of natural resource for, uh, i mean a forest for industry you have so you, you it's not all yeah, it, oh, we have tremendous amounts of wildlife and so on and so forth it's it's a highly contextual approach but how do you give value to wildlife how do you give val value to these these this land you know so you could cut it all down and grow rice if you wish you know and and the vegans will be happy but you you destroy it for the biodiversity that lives there you you give value to these places by making them valuable for people and if revenue can be generated from wildlands in india why not and if it can be generated from what are called wastelands but which are very biomass rich landscapes why not why are we not giving our people and wildlife these potentials Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So from a policy perspective, you said you have to influence policy. Um, what's the next step, Ryan? Like, is, you know, what is step number one in India for this? Because given what you've said about the PETA and, and Humane Society influence, it, this is Mount Everest in front of you. I, actually, no. it, it, I wouldn't say it's Mount Everest. Uh, no. I, I, for example, there were recent amendments. You have processes in a democracy for changing policy. Like you submit reports to the government. Right, right. They might ignore you dead. Right. But you still have a legal system. You still have the courts. You have the Supreme Court. So if things are anti-constitutional. So, for example, I'll give you a very concrete example. And Peter and I have been discussing this of late. A, a farmer's right to protect his livelihood is protected by the Constitution of India which interprets it, it says it's a fundamental right. Your right to livelihood is a fundamental right. Now, if that's inhibited, you can take it to court. So once again, uh, we have a Wildlife Protection Act, which bans hunting across the board, more or less. So you have to put it into context and, and file a case eventually, which is that how can you inhibit 150 million people and their families from protecting their resources? Recently, the prime minister's office asked for there were all these reports submitted to the office called doubling farmers income and in many areas of india farmers who own like a few acres of land uh, lose up to 70 percent 
of their crops. That's 70% of their income. That's a serious inhibition of livelihood. And 70% losses due to wild boar or doves or partridge or, or, or monkeys, you know. So it's, it's, um, there are processes. It's just that over 50 years, nobody's a, a really bothered to take this head on. So we hope to do that in some ways soon. Peter, your thoughts? Well, I don't. I think Ryan has uh, stated what's going on, and um, I repeat that we. You asked earlier in the conversation that how what will we go back to? What is an ideal situation? I think the situation pre nineteen seventy two, the protocols with, that were in place for the past uh, eighty years or something in India, they are perfectly all right to go back to, in which we had forest guards who had uh, beats. Each forest guard had a section of a forest under him, and he was required, after the breeding season, he was required to submit a report of what wildlife there was in his beat. And this was processed, and the carrying capacity calculated, and then, accordingly, hunting permits were issued uh, after leaving a certain amount for uh, prey predators. Right. So if their carrying capacity is for three uh, samba, which are very large deer, well, if they're five, seven, six or seven are there now, so, okay, Two you leave for the tiger, and you give a permit for one or two. So that we, we have a, a protocol to go back to. It's, it's not that we have to invent things now. We know what is there. We know which forest has what sort of carrying capacity. All these things have been worked out uh, pre-independence. So it's, it's not as if we don't know what's going on. And um, the other thing, of course, is that uh, why should Indians be not not uh, be permitted to taste venison or, or why, why should it be illegal? Why can't we manage things? I repeat that we have to manage our wildlife just like we have to manage the landscape. Bans and stuff don't work. We have to learn how to manage what is going on. Wildlife, because of we, are, we have a population of one and a quarter billion people. We cannot ignore that. And we have a limited land mass. So mm -hmm. although the requirements, as you said, Indians are very poor, which means that basically an average Indian family does not use as many resources as, for example, a Western family. So we are, except for our three mm -hmm. hot meals a day, uh, the, the resources that are required by Indians to survive are not really much. We don't look for a very uh, large amount of things. But um, they need the, uh, the, the ability to... Uh, the right to life is enshrined as a fundamental right in the Constitution, and the Supreme Court has interpreted the right to life as including the right to a livelihood, because without a livelihood, you don't have a right to life. So if you deny the right to livelihood, you deny the right to life. So these are connected. Therefore, a right to livelihood is a fundamental right. And uh, like Ryan just clarified that you see if a farmer is not permitted to protect his crops, then you are denying him the right to uh, his livelihood. And uh, that has to be rectified. We have to accept the fact that whatever is born dies. Okay? Death is something that is as normal as being born. Point number one. Point number two, mm -hmm. even for humans, now we have learned by the use of contraceptives to limit our families to two. But the huge population boom in India came with the introduction of antibiotics and sulfur drugs which actually enabled every child born to survive practically. So in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, antibiotics reached the remotest village and we had this sudden population boom in India. 
now it's leveling off because people have realized that you know you use contraceptive so you produce two now the dogs for example a bitch produces over her lifespan of 10 years she uh, 14 years but 10 years let's say she produces uh, 10 liters of of um, six puppies each uh, 60 puppies out of which half are females half are males and then those six say, uh, 30 females produce further litters so it's it's geometric progression so you can't say that every dog has a human soul and and it needs to be protected even in nature the ideal uh, ideal um, population structure would be where in insects for example we have insects some moths give birth to 50000 eggs some female moths a single female australian moth they lay 50000 eggs out of which half are female 25000 females if all those 25000 females go out and lay another 50000 eggs each that's when you have a, a, a population outbreak so obviously this can't just continue you know exponentially mm -hmm. it has to be controlled they are natural controls they are parasitic wasps and so on and so forth in the case of tigers now there are no predators that's why their litter size has increased the prey base has increased so these things need management this is all speaks for the lack of management you make one law saying that killing uh, old cattle is illegal now and uh, the, the result is that you have a sudden increase in the leopard and, and tiger uh, prey uh, thing I mean, and on my veranda in my home the leopards they bust the the wire mesh and come in and take the dogs from the the veranda so we have to the dogs don't protect us anymore we protect the dogs mm. I, I don't know how many times i've had to rush out at night and chase the leopards away so you know it's becoming less and boring after a point so this is this is not managed this is unmanaged and this is not an ideal state when you have a large section of the landscape occupied by humans so you can't say that you know let wildlife be unmanaged and protected and this and that and everything will level off and um, you know the, you guys, we live in the city on the 10th floor so it's okay we, our children are not not suffering but in case your child gets taken by the leopard or if you your your father gets taken by the tiger i've had a, a youngster a teenager was working for me an 18 year old and uh, a very good worker and then one day two men came to see him, say, yeah, what's the matter? Said, well, we need to talk to so-and-so. And they said, your father was killed by a tiger. You should have seen that boy's face. He was suddenly the head of the mm. family. It's, it's, you know, and this is something mm -hmm. that our, our animal rights, um, urban citizens, they don't want to talk about this. Villagers for them, three, we have over 300 people killed in our villages every year by bears, leopards, tigers. You name it, snake bite. It's mm -hmm. not. It's it's mm -hmm. it's it's. Mm -hmm. We are we mm -hmm. as Indian citizens are unable to afford protection to our own people. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You see, in Jim Corbett's time in, in the in the nineteen forties, you did not step out after dark. Indian villages. When you talk about the the Englishman who came to India and hunted. The truth of the matter is that through the 1800s, before 19, the 1940s, you did not step out after dark in Indian villages because the tigers and the leopards took over after that. You only stepped out at dawn. The Englishman mm. uh, lifted that mm. burden for Indian villages, and it's rapidly returning. And whether it's desirable or not is completely debatable. Yeah. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, if I, uh, can you hear me, guys? Yeah, uh, go ahead. We talk about colonialism nowadays, but it seems to me at least that when it comes to animal rights, that it's your animal rights activists nearly all of the time lives in the city. 
more affluent, lives in an apartment far removed from the issues a small farmer faces with wildlife. And the real colonial attitude is the animal rights attitude, where you say that an animal and a human being require equal consideration, or the animal might require more consideration than a human being. So what this philosophy actually does is not elevate the value of animals, it devalues human life and it devalues the life of the poorest people in our country. The real colonial view over here is the animal rights view towards Indian farmers or tribal people for that matter, who today in India are not allowed to feed their families with wild wild game, which is which they've been doing for since time immemorial, you know. In 1972, when you had your Wildlife Protection Act, you had 38 million tribal people in India. At the stroke of the pen, uh, of a pen, they lost rights to collect food like they had been doing for since time immemorial. So one can look at what sounds very good. I mean, it, it's, it's so full of virtue, it's, it's unbelievable. But at the same yeah. time, it can also be the mask, the mask of compassion behind which lurks a very serious power politic, you know? Mm -hmm. Ryan, what is the, um, as we get close to wrapping this up, what is the next step for you? I know that you've, you might have formed a, a non-profit yourself, right? And what, what's going on, on in that on that front? I think one needs to go about this very carefully in the sense, um, a lot of people see this as, oh, uh, pro-hunting, anti no, it's not. It's, 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 it's something to unlock the earth. It's, I, I would see opening up of natural resource using, whether it's fishing, hunting, butterfly farming, mushroom collection, uh, or a usage of, of natural resources by people where it's allowed by the state as an unlocking of the earth. It's an unlocking of potential that could be very good for people and wildlife and natural environments, you know. So I, I would go about this by very carefully examining other models and seeing our current model and looking for how this might adhere to our constitutional values. We have quite an excellent constitution which looks after rights, but we also have a lot of laws and acts which were written maybe with good intentions, but which don't encompass the the full potential of the constitution, you know. So if you look at the context for our Wildlife Protection Act, it was, came about as a precursor to the emergency in 1972, right before our country was always almost mm -hmm. plunged into a socialist authoritarian state, you know. So you had, uh, you had your tribals losing all their rights to collect food, you had your farmers losing their rights uh, to, to protect their crops, and, and right after that you had um, India almost sliding into socialist authoritarianism, you know, oh, but uh, somebody got killed in a plane crash and that never happened. So if you look at the context within which a lot of these things happened, 50 years have elapsed, maybe it's time India needs to change, you know, and, and maybe there's a way to do it as well. Well, um, it's certainly a, a hot topic and anytime we speak with India, um, the podcast does very, very, very well because people are just fascinated by, you know, this, this, this country that has so much wildlife, but you cannot utilize the resource at all in terms of what you have. Um, the invitation's always open, Peter and Ryan, as things progress, as things change, as you, um, you know, maybe do a little bit of policy tweaking and get a, a dare I say, a win in the policy tweaking column 
um, reach out to us, let us know, and we'll have you back on and we can have more conversations about this because I think I think one of the things that I love about this podcast and, and the, the, the work that we do here is that we almost set little stories up in the podcast world that we, we constantly come back to and people want to follow along like, oh, what's happening in India now? What's happening? You talked about man-eating leopards and you talked about, you know, human-wildlife conflict with tigers and now you're talking about this idea of, of natural use, uh, sort of consumptive use uh, in, the Indian, in the Indian context. And so I think that we want to, we certainly want to continue keeping up with the story, Ryan and Peter, um, as we move forward. Before I, before I, um, I sign off, Peter, you want to say a few last words? Uh, yes. Um, uh, at the moment, Ravi, um, the Wildlife Protection Act is up for review by the government. So we shall see what they come up with. We have made our suggestions and um, we will see what comes up. And uh, then maybe we will proceed through the courts or whatever. We will find a way until the right to livelihood of the poorest Indian is taken into consideration by the powers that be, because that is what our constitution guarantees. And we will certainly use you as a, a forum in which to air our anguish and our successes. And thank you very much for inviting us this time. No, I appreciate Ryan reaching out and saying, hey, I want you to be on your podcast. I was like, all right, no problems. You can come on the podcast. <laughs> so, uh, so, Ryan, any final yeah, words? We've, we've submitted some proposed amendments to our Wildlife Protection Act. It's in one of the houses of parliament. So let's see where that goes. And uh, we've, uh, we've made quite a detailed document looking at policy and studying all the potentials and, you know, the constitutional applications of, of it. So let's see. Let's see what happens. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you, Robbie. When is that going to be looked at, Ryan? When is that going it to be looked at in Parliament at the moment? It, they're, they're debating it already in Parliament right now. So there are many proposals from many camps, including, of course, the animal rights camp. So it's. I, I hope the, our parliamentarians uh, can see through the arguments and find the, the logos in them. Let's see. That's the sunset, Robbie. So, Ryan, let me ask this question from a, yeah, um, let me ask this: the when will that debate finish? Are we talking end of April, end of May? Is there a a, a finality to this legislative season in which they're like, whether they're going to make amendments or not? When would we see those amendments come out? I Ryan? don't think they've given us a fixed date but it's currently being looked at by a parliamentary oh. committee. I, I can send you the proposed amendments if you'd like to read them. And uh, I'll, I'll email sure. them to you. You can have a look. But uh, they'd already come up with some amendments, which is, I think, a, a good step in some regards. They were, they were opening up wildlife as a resource in some regards for ownership and so on and so forth, but baby steps. So we, 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 we took it to another level, I, I hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Peter... Um... I've been listening to the beautiful soundscape of India behind you, the entire podcast, hearing the birds and whatnot, and I'm stuck in a room in Mississippi. So uh, I appreciate you, Peter. And Ryan, thank you so much for reaching out. And please don't hesitate to reach out if you need anything from us, okay? Cheers, cheers Robbie. Thank Thanks, you. Robbie. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always.
leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.